Gospel according to St. John. Jesus came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of land that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired from his journey, sat down there at the well. It was about noon. A woman of Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. His disciples had gone into town to buy food, and the Samaritan woman said to him, how can you, a Jew, ask me, a Samaritan woman, for a drink? For Jews use nothing in common with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you do not even have a bucket, and the cistern is deep. Where then can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us this cistern and drank from it himself with his children and his flocks? Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I shall give will never thirst. The water I shall give will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I may not be thirsty or have to keep coming here to draw water. I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you people say that the place to worship is in Jerusalem. And Jesus said to her, Believe me, woman, the hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You people worship what you do not understand. We worship what we understand because salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. And indeed, the Father seeks such people to worship him. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, the one called the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us everything. And Jesus said to her, I am he, the one who is speaking to you. Many of the Samaritans of that town began to believe in him. And when the Samaritans came to him, they invited him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. Many more began to believe in him because of his word. And they said to the woman, we no longer believe because of your word. We have heard for ourselves. And we know that this is truly the savior of the world. The gospel of the Lord. This gospel pays close attention. But I wanted to do two things. I want to put it in the gospel context, this story in the context of the gospel of John, and then go through and talk about this story because it's about the moral and the spiritual life and how the two go together. Can't have one without the other. It's how it is that we transcend and become full human beings. And so first, how this works into the gospel. And so this is the point of the story, or at least the context of the story. If you go to the Old Testament and a man and a woman meet by a well, a marriage is going to happen. That was the story of uh, Isaac and his wife, Rebecca. It's the story of Jacob and his wife, Rachel. It's the story of Moses and his wife, Zipporah. Because women get the water... And now it would be singles bars, but if you want to meet a woman, hang out at a well. I'm just, if you ever go back to the first century, I'm just telling you. 
And so in the Old Testament, it is about a story of marriage. It's like it was a dark and stormy night. If a story starts out like that, you know that it's going to be a thriller, right? Because they're just ways of telling stories, tropes, that tell you what kind of story this is. Now, why is that important? Remember how the Gospel of John starts out. First chapter is six days. And then it says, and the next day, and so that would be day seven. That's the Sabbath, right? And what happens on the Sabbath day? There's a wedding at Cana. And who picks up the bar tab at that wedding? You know the story well, right? It's Jesus. Because in, back then, and I think it varies now, but back then the bridegroom picked up the bar tab. And so when Jesus does what the bridegroom's supposed to do, who's really the bridegroom at the wedding? That's why in the very next chapter, chapter 3, John the Baptist says, I'm just the best man, and when the bridegroom shows up, it's time for me to get out of the way. And then you go to chapter 3, and what's it happening? Jesus is baptizing. It's like he slides into John the Baptist's shoes, but he changes what it means. Because John says, do you remember in that first chapter? I baptize you with water for the forgiveness of sins, but one is coming after me who will baptize you in water and the... See, what, what the heck am I doing? Let's all rise for the creed. <laughs> okay, chapter 3. So, now we get to the woman at the well. And Jesus has already been set up with the bridegroom, right? And so, baptism involves water, and the Holy Spirit is the presence of God. Okay, do you remember what time this story happens? This is the attentive listener. Okay, it says at the sixth hour. The sixth hour is noon. Fair enough? So if you turn to, I think it's chapter 22, and they take Jesus out to crucify him, and we will read that, the Passion, on Good Friday, I will give you one guess what time they lead him out. Noon. And because the gospel goes out of its way to tell you what time this happens, it's because it's drawing a connection. That's something about the bridegroom. So let's go into the story. So here's a woman, there's this guy at the well, and it starts out just talking about getting a drink, right? Starts out in earthly things. And then what happens next? Jesus says, if you had asked, and what the gift of God was, I give you living water. What's living water? Living water is just flowing water. So, for instance, in the first story, which is from Exodus, which is about Moses striking a rock and water flows out, that's living water. That's the way the Jews talk about it. It's water that's moving, okay? But there's also this other dimension to it just because of the words they use. So Jesus, it's like poetry. It means one thing on one level and something else on another level. And so when Jesus says, I'll give you living water, welling up, there's this old rabbinic tradition that when Jacob founded that well and he meets his sweetheart, Rebecca, who will be his wife and the mother of Esau and Jacob, 
that the water wells up over the top and feeds everybody or waters the flocks for 10 years. And that's one of the reasons, according to the rabbis, why uh, Rachel, no, Rebecca and Isaac want to get married. So there is this tradition in the back of it. And she goes, well, I'd like to have this water. I mean, you make this bubble out the top like a drinking fountain. And then he changes the subject, doesn't he? Now let's stop at the living water for a minute. Any example you can think of living water from Jesus' crucifixion? When they shove a steer inside, what comes out? Water and blood, living water. Water from the side of Christ. Do you see how the gospel just works together for the attentive reader? So, with that in mind, living water, then the conversation changes. He asks, where's your husband, right? Because she's alone, she doesn't have any friends, she's like persona non grata. She's a public sinner. And how many husbands has she had? Okay, let's count. Who is the first country that's conquered Israel? Assyria, number two. Babylon, number three. Greece, number four. The Persians, number five. I had Persian and Greece mixed up, but number five is the Romans. Five spouses, five conquerors. That's probably a coincidence. But she's a sinner, right? This is someone who either has colossally bad judgment or has trouble making commitments or both. This is a broken person. She's not a Jew. She's a Gentile. You know, in one of the Old, the Old Testament, Micah, it said that God was going to end idol worship. And he was going to bring the Gentiles to his holy mountain. Well, we still have idols, right? But nobody has temples to Zeus. Well, probably someone does. I mean, this is America. They worship almost everything. But in the ancient world, 300 years after these events, idol worship came to an end. The temples all closed for business. That's pretty amazing. They've been open for millennia. But that's probably a side note. And so the Gentile, you've told me everything. And so what is happening? I know, she says, that God's going to set a prophet, a Messiah. You know, the first person Jesus admits to that he is the Messiah is the Samaritan woman. The only other record of admitting to it is when he comes up for trial in front of the Sanhedrin, and that's why they want to kill him. Isn't it interesting, this woman at the well? And so, what do you take away from all of this story of the bridegroom? And why the heck the bridegroom? If you go back to the Old Testament, one of the oldest ways of talking about God, and it goes back to the prophet Hosea, is God is the bridegroom and Israel is an unfaithful wife infidelity. What she's doing? She's running around after strangers. Asherah, Baal, Marduk. She has all these other boyfriends on the side, these false gods. The biggest sin in the Old Testament, the fundamental sin, we think pride, but the fundamental sin in the Old Testament was idol worship. Well, bottom line, if you think about it, it's the same thing. If you're God, you're just worshiping an idol. I mean, you can't save yourself. But the analogy 
And when we talk about God in the spiritual life, we talk about it, we think about it in analogous terms. To think about something in an analogous term is we talk about it all the way as human beings. How many times in one day would you say something is like? Or you know what, you know what this is like? Because that's how we think. How does God talk to you? How do you go from water to living water to the gift of the Spirit to the Messiah to this guy told me everything I did? Because that is the spiritual life. It's how you go from just thinking this is everything to seeing that there is this reality present. It's as if in the veil of materiality, there is a face staring at you. But you gotta take time to be aware that you're in somebody's presence. So this is the faith in God. And so for this story, what are the two things Jesus puts together in the story? For I think the first time in the Gospel of John, he puts together sin, and he puts together living water, repentance from sin, right? Because he's baptizing. This is how the story opens. And so let's think about this, because providentially, Monday, 5.30 p.m., right here, you could just stay here, bring snacks, and at 5.30, 13 priests are going to show up to hear your confession. You can tell stories to each other, you can chat. But it's an opportunity to experience the forgiveness of God in the midst of Lent. How do you prepare for that? I mean, if you go to confession and it sounds like your confession is just a broken word, I mean a broken record, same thing. I'm, you got kind of comfortable with it, you say to the priest, I don't know why I keep saying this, I've done this a million times. Never make progress. This is at the heart of making progress in the spiritual life. To see your moral life and your prayer life as the same reality. Because in all the spiritual doctrine of the church, the moral life and the life of prayer goes together. If you go back to the 16th century and you read St. Teresa of Avila's interior castle, it's you knock on the front door, it's dark, it's cold outside, there's two torches burning. I was telling this story earlier. For the first time in the dim light of that door, you look out into the dark and you see all the glittering eyes of all the things that have been biting you. The stuff that you thought was good, but it really undermines you. And you say, I've got to go into this castle. And in this castle, there are seven mansions, seven rooms. And they're just this. Prayer, repentance of sin, lockstep throughout. So the first room is wean yourself off serious sin. The second room is be willing to endure the experience of conflict in your heart as you go back and forth about what really makes you happy. The third room is you start making war on all the petty stuff in your life. The fourth room is you find out you're making some progress. Then rooms number five, six, and seven is just rapid progress in prayer that God does for us that we don't do for ourselves. This is St. Teresa of Avila, and it comes into our tradition 
as the purgative way, the illuminative way, and the unitive way. Purgative means you really have to take sin seriously in your life because it's idol worship. The illuminative way is you start getting self-understanding. It just makes sense. And the unitive way is the confidence that you have in the presence of God in good times and then bad. When I explain it like that, and sometimes how people understand this way of understanding our human religious experience, it presumes that you're making progress. You're understanding different. That it's not just water, it's not just living water, it's now the Holy Spirit, and Jesus is God, and he leads you to the cross. That's ascension to a critical understanding of our role in life. Jesus says, you want to make progress? Embrace your cross. You got suffering in life? You're on the right road. If you're making other people suffer in life, maybe not so much. So some things to think about there, right? So how would you make a good examination of conscience? A good examination of conscience. So, just three simple things to think about. Because it comes right up when we were talking about chapter 5 of Matthew. Think about the way you disconnect from God in your thoughts, in your words, and in your deeds. Thoughts. When you just can't control your mind. When you don't even try to control your mind. The mind is a terrible master but a good servant. But someone's got to be in control, right? That's every appetite, attachment, and impulse. Then you're really not in control. Something else is. And so, taking ownership of disciplining your mind. Word? You know, true, maybe no one else is listening to you. But if you're not listening to what you say, why should they listen to what you say? So what comes out of our mouths? Cynicism, profanity, things that just degrade us or degrade others. This is the problem of sin and word. And indeed, which is mostly how people think about things because it's true, it's what we do. So you get up the next morning and you say, that wasn't really me. No, the answer for all of us, the beast is in there. It's whether or not you acknowledge it. And so the story of the bridegroom and the bride. Analogy. The most intimate, consensual relationship you can have in life is husband-wife. Now mother-child's very intimate, but it's only consensual on one part, right? Because consent is when you give yourself to the relationship. And so when Jesus uses an analogy of the bridegroom and we're the bride, I can understand how you can feel uncomfortable about it. It's why it's presented in these stories. But the larger part is about the sense of intimacy with God. And so as we're looking at the Gospel of John, remember that it keeps pointing to what we'll talk about on Good Friday. Because... In that moment, all four Gospels agree. That's when the face of God becomes visible. Amen.